Hello, and welcome to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. This podcast feed shares Socratic dialogue with invisible partners and allies, where we discuss and challenge our values and principles, and have honest discussions about the world. We hope that in doing so, we can see things outside of our plain sight with 2020 vision. Let's go. We're just going to start. That's what's going to happen. So Francis, I had a few questions for you. And these seem like really basic questions, but you have a way of answering in complex ways, Hmm. but also you simplify them for the five-year-old because you have great metaphors. So one of the first questions I wanted to ask you Mm -hmm. is what the heck is a knowledge worker? Do you want the five-year-old answer? I want it all. (laughs) I think the five-year-old answer is actually the best one. So Genevieve, you've got a body. You got little toes down here. Uh, you got legs, you got arms, you got a face, you got eyes. I think somewhere on the other side of those eyes, there's a brain. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, in the past, imagine we were farmers. We would be using our bodies every day. Or imagine in the Industrial Revolution that we worked in a factory and we were making... Maybe we work for Ford Motor Company. We were making the first cars and we were using tools with our hands every day and we were getting paid to do that. Then these amazing devices like, well, pen and paper was the first device like this. Um, But then computers are devices that are not really about physical labor anymore. I mean, you do use your body, you type. Typing is the use of the hands. Um, use your eyes to look at the screen. But all the value now is the work of the mind. And so I don't know about your your parents, but my parents were very focused on education. And I think in most cultures around the world, there's an understanding that the more you learn, the more knowledge you gain through reading books, through um, learning different skills uh, through training under different teachers uh, you can you can learn skills that uh, are very very valuable Um, for example a doctor a doctor goes through this intense education for many decades a doctor is a knowledge worker is the skill in the doctor's hands well yeah I mean the surgeon surgeon actually has tactile skill he's a craftsman right but but if you didn't have the skill in the doctor's mind, would the skill in the doctor's hands be valuable? No. Like, otherwise, doctors would not go to school for all those years. They would just, like, skip to it and just, like, go to surgery right away. Like, you'd have, like, 12-year-old surgeons who were just, like, really good with their hand. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so it's really the skills in the mind. And, um, and so then now we think about levels. So um, uh, imagine you have um, a really broken down task. So uh, let's just say I want you to copy and paste something from column A in a spreadsheet over here to uh, some Word document over here. And that's the task. And I show you how to do it. Maybe it's your first time ever using 
you know, uh, a spreadsheet or your first time using a Word document. I say, here's how you, here's this, here's what a spreadsheet is. Here's what a Word document is. Here's how you copy. Here's how you paste. Look, it's like magic. We take these things for granted, by the way. Like copy and paste is actually really cool. It's a cool technology. But like that simple exercise mm -hmm. could be a very broken down task. And if I need you to do it a thousand times, it could be a better use of your time than my time. So I might pay you to do it. So is that knowledge work? It is. Now, as we then automate that step, the bar is raised. So now instead of you needing to do that copy and pasting activity, now the computer does it. Okay, now what? Well, now we have to do something more advanced with our minds. Um, so uh, maybe what we're doing is um, I'll now display a piece of writing to you. And I'm asking you, how could you ex say the same thing in a better way? Hmm. Maybe you're training an AI. I was just about to say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, so if you're now training an AI and you're trying to make it better and better and better, you see how that's more advanced knowledge work right. than the simple copy and pasting exercise. Okay. I ask you this because we talk, you talk a lot about repetitive tasks mm -hmm. and repetitive things that we do, right? Right. And I was thinking, well, how do you look at chop wood, carry water? Mm-hmm. Mm, Please mm. help me understand. Yeah. How do you contextualize chop wood carry water? Because, you know, I don't want to stop breathing. It's automatic. Yeah, right. Repetitive. Yeah. And I happen to like meditating. Yeah. I think maybe you should explain for anyone who listens to us what you're referring to by chop, to, chop wood carry water. Because chop wood carry water actually is a, is a reference to, well, you say. Yeah. Chop wood carry water is in my opinion, it's going back to the basics. It's very, it's stoic in nature, mm -hmm. right? It's about discipline. You just show up and you mm -hmm. do the reps essentially. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned in doing reps is that that's how you build muscle, mm -hmm. muscle for many other skills. Mm -hmm. So is, could we not say mm -hmm. that inputting data over and over that it could become actually a very beneficial process mm -hmm. like why do we want to automate everything francis that's what that's what i want to know it's or good, what do we not want to automate it's a good question okay okay i'm going to answer it in a roundabout way um i'm going to talk briefly about my job and just well i'll start with the 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 buck stops with me the buck stops with me is a funny phrase. Um, it doesn't really make sense. Like you'd have to explain it as a as slang. It's like American slang, but it's American slang that was used by an American president. And what he meant was that if anything goes wrong, it's ultimately his fault because he's the commander in chief. He's the president. So he's ultimately responsible for the success of the country or the failure of the country. And, and so there's a similar thing here with me as the president of the company. If 
um, if this company uh, um, has a, um, I don't know, like if we, we have bad customer quality and customers complain, can I blame someone at the company for not doing their job? Ultimately, it's my fault. It happened on my watch. I I set things up in such a way so that a client had a bad outcome. And so this taking level of general responsibility means that when I show up to work every day, nobody is I don't have a manager who's saying, "Francis, you have these five tasks to do today. If you do these five tasks, then you can go home and you're done. You're done with your work." <laughs> It would be so nice, Genevieve. Yeah. I would love it. Mm-hmm. But there's nobody tells me that. I don't get that. Instead, it's totally open-ended. And I call this sitting in the void. So really advanced knowledge workers are dealing with unscoped, open-ended uncertainty. Let's go with the proverbial idea in the shower. Okay. If I have an idea, it could be a terrible idea or it could be an incredible idea. It could be an idea that will make this company like many millions of dollars or it will be an idea that will lose millions of dollars. Um, now I have, I'm setting up certain checks and balances and I'm surrounding myself with advisors and others to triangulate to make sure that that uh, more of my good ideas get supported and less of my bad ideas happen. But the point about the creative life of the mind is it's not uh, give the answers are not given to you. The answers emerge from within. Where do they come from? Where do ideas come from? When I say, you know what? We really need to focus on our, this month, the number one focus this month is on our uh, client service principles. We need to improve the, the experience that our clients have in these five ways. I don't know, is that really what we should do this month? Why should we do that instead of focusing on making the website prettier or on um, changing our incentives or on anything, you know? I can shift my focus from here to there. I could go with this idea or that idea. I have limited resources. I have limited time. And nobody is telling me what the right answer is because it's not obvious. It's strategy and it's creativity. These are the very advanced forms of knowledge work. Strategy, creativity, leadership. They have big words like that. And then as you go down the stack, things get broken and broken. So like I trust, let's just say, um, I trust our head of sales. And then our head of sales trusts a sales manager and the head of, that sales manager trusts that salesperson. And that salesperson has a quota. And that's that salesperson is given targets. This, you see that in that chain, that chain of command, things moved from a very like fuzzy cloud of like, you know, uh, totally op- open-ended to then, so my my work was to, of the infinite possibilities, to choose one. We're going to do this. 
we could do anything, but we're going to do this. And then that went down the chain to somebody who's now has a job that has a job description and a clear, clear expectations and clear requirements. So this, this framework that I've given you is called levels of delegation. Mm. And uh, it is basically the breaking down of work. At the very highest end, you have the creation of work. You have the person who is imagining what valuable activity is. And that person is saying, I think this is valuable activity. And then that valuable activity is then done the first time. And then it's done 10 times. And then it's broken into little steps. And it's divided. And then it's scaled. Um, And so generally, you get paid more and more and more the more uncertainty you can handle. So if you pull all the uncertainty out of it, well, at that point, you can even have software do it. You can even have a machine do it. If there's literally no uncertainty left, it's it's a job for a machine. But the introduction of uncertainty is actually where we apply our intelligence. And the more uncertainty the more need there is for creativity, strategy, and leadership. Okay, so let's let let's go to this because creativity, you know, for me that's a that's a huge passion, right? Or you know, this it's very important to me. And I think about my days as a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, I started taking piano at 5 and then my university degree was in music. Mm-hmm. And I always did scales Mm -hmm. as mundane as they were but they were very important to do um and i'm going back to this idea Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. at what point do we decide that we no longer need to do scales Mm -hmm. or do we always need to do scales Mm -hmm. so i don't have enough musical theory to know about the scales thing but you, let's go back to the chop wood, carry water idea because yeah. I love this idea. So let's just say there was a robot invented that could chop wood and carry water. Okay. Like maybe you don't need to chop wood and carry water. But then that sort of begs the question, well, what, it, what are the, the essential human tasks that build skill, discipline, self-worth, fulfillment that are just inherently useful and good for your time? Because what's really being communicated by the chop wood and carry water thing is like, Show up, do the work, ground yourself in valuable activities, and let the work itself teach you, right? And Mm -hmm. shape you. Yep. That's really what's getting at. So here's my chop wood carry water. I wake up in the morning, (laughs) right here. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we're recording this in my home. And um, I wake up, and I'm usually, usually actually, like, tired. I woke up this morning at 5 a.m., did not want to get up. Um, anxious. Oh, my gosh, there's so many emails, there's so many things to do. Oh, my gosh. Um, feeling insecure. Oh, my gosh, I don't know how to do this job. I'm, like, totally, you know, like, <laughs> like <laughs> this is, like, you know, this is really tough and everybody's counting on me to do this. And, like, can I do it? I don't know. Uh, a little bit depressed. Oh my gosh, this is, you know, like, uh, this is is not very fun. And like, is my, you know, like this is this, uh, and I, I, you know, I just have all these things and these are all human things like anxiety, insecurity, depression, and, uh, and exhaustion, low energy. And so, um, 
after I've taken a shower and and uh, made some coffee, I'm actually even as I'm doing that, I'm listening to mantras, which are beautiful, basically beautiful chants, beautiful music that have the beautiful words that have very specific meanings that help ground you in um, in a higher state of awareness. Mm-hmm. And I will pick up one of these ancient books that are all around me, and I will read from them. And as I read from them, it's active reading. I open up my computer and I open up Notion and I open up a workspace called Alexandria, which is our company library. And I will go and literally uh, type like a scribe. Uh, I will write the words that I am reading. And I will do this for half an hour to an hour. This is your your chop wood? Carry water. Okay. That's right. Every morning, I scribe books. I'm a scribe. I do it every morning. And I do this while listening to music. Um, Once I'm done with my mantras, I will listen to like electronic dance music usually that's like elevated and beautiful. And um, I make playlists too, mix them with the words. But the these words, let's just see if I, if do you mind reading some of them? Just give you a sense. Okay. So, um, Here's the Dhammapada, the sayings of the Buddha. Mm-hmm. And I've added all of them to Alexandria. And the first teaching, and this is from 600 BC. So this is 2,623 years old. There's a real person said these words, real historical figure. Also a knowledge worker. Also a knowledge worker. Exactly. <laughs> you see where I'm going here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. If a man speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows him as the wheel of the cart follows the beast that draws the cart. What we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday. And our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. If a man speaks or acts with a pure mind, joy follows him as his own shadow. He insulted me. He hurt me. He defeated me. He robbed me. Those who think such thoughts will not be free from hate. He, he, she insulted me. She hurt me. She defeated me. She robbed me. Those who think such thoughts will not be free from hate. For hate is not conquered by hate. Hate is conquered by love. This is a law eternal. Many do not know that we are here in this world to live in harmony. Those who know this do not fight against each other. I'm going to stop. By the way, I have to comment on just the scribe level here is phenomenal. I I mean, there's something about Alexandria, the color scheme. I mean, present. I actually, I'm not even going to give it away. I'm not even going to say it it's because just, I think people should just look at share, it. Share the link. Share yeah, the link. we're going to share the link. Yeah. By the way, that experience of... First of all, realizing the power of Notion as a piece of software, and and this is that that is its own chop wood carry water. Yeah, like 
Learn how to use Notion. It is actually just, have you ever seen a child use an iPad? Oh, intuitive for them. Have you ever seen a, a grandparent use an <laughs> iPad? It's like a mess. <laughs> so clunky. Right. So, so, so like um, retaining what is called plasticity mm-hmm. is actually something that knowledge workers do. Uh, it's that youth of the mind that you can learn a new skill and learn how to use a new software. So no, when I first discovered Notion, I realized that it was, first of all, a new category of product. I don't even know what to call it. It is like... It's like a second brain. It's product. like a second brain, right? And it's almost like a knowledge base. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's a combination of what used to be Microsoft Word or Google Docs and Google Sheets and uh, or Microsoft Excel um, and slides and all these tools and databases and, and but it's 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 a rare product because it is it is three things that are not normally true at the same time: easy to use, beautiful, and powerful. Mm-hmm. And that when you have things that are normally in trade-off relationships that are all expressed. That is a sign of transcendence, which is transcending trade-offs, which is usually achieved through design. Um, and uh, we could talk more about that, but, but when I realized the power of this tool, I wanted to become a master at it. And there are people at Notion that are, there are people who are better at Notion than I am, but I'm, I'm good at Notion. And then I started to realize, wow, they've just made text so beautiful so if i was a medieval scribe so i know a little bit about history so i know how these books i mean the history of these books is amazing Mm -hmm. so how did these words even come to be well let's play a thought experiment let's assume that all these words and all these books are just garbage and junk that like nobody should read them nobody should care about them and they're they're basically not worth your time it's much better to spend time on tiktok or watching the news than reading the Buddha. Who cares about the Buddha, right? He was 2,600 years ago. Why are you wasting your time reading this? Like, why don't you watch this Netflix show with me, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, if, if it's so irrelevant and so not worth your time, then why don't you write something? Why don't you write something in a Word document? Why don't you write something in a Google document? Why don't you write something in a Notion document? That you think is still going to be read by people 2,600 years from now. I would argue, though, that, Francis, that's something that, I mean, and, and this is a question I have for you a little mm. bit later. Mm. Um, maybe I'll just bring it up right now. Mm. When I'm depressed, I go straight to the nihilistic thinking, and I'm like, <laughs> who gives a bleep? Who gives a bleep? Who gives a bleep? I'm going back to bed. Yeah, so, totally. So 2,000 years from now, I can't even think about exactly. that. Exactly. I can't. A, I don't even want to, but though. But that's the point. But some of us are nihilists. and we. So I want to know, why actually do you think about... Let's let's engage yeah. that nihilistic yeah. thinking. I'm actually trying to get that response. So thank you for, for giving it to me, because that's exactly what I'm trying to get to. 2,600 years from now is an unimaginably distant time in the future. To put that in perspective... It's actually very hard to imagine the year 2050 Mm. and it's 2023. So this is 28 years from now. I'll be 61 years old, you know, Mm -hmm. I was born in 1989. So I think I did. 83. So yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. So 23 years from now, 2023, or 20, sorry, plus two, uh, and then, so 27 years from now, 27 years from now, be 2050. Hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine, like, okay, this is the iPhone, let's just say the most latest iPhone is the iPhone 14. It's hard to imagine what the iPhone 20 is going to be like. Like, is it even going to be an iPhone? Maybe it's going to be something else. Like, you know, we're at the verge of all these huge advances, self-driving cars. Um, uh, are we even going to have screens anymore? Maybe we're going to have, like, um, glasses that are, are better than screens. Or maybe we're going to have implants into our brain. Um, maybe in the year 2050, we don't have computers anymore. We just have implants. So what about the year 2075? Then it's even harder to predict or imagine. What about the year 3000? You know, by the way, it's just a jump. So 2075, 2100, Mm-mm. 2200, 2300, 2400, 25. I mean, it, it, so the year 3000. 2020 pandemic feels like so thousands th- of years ago already. The year, the year 3000 will just be a thousand years. Yeah. So we're talking about the year 4,600. Like, I'll just put it out there. If it's generally perceived that the United States is the most stable and defensible country in the world. It's the biggest military, and that's expressed through currencies. Whenever there's a crisis, the dollar goes up. It's hard to imagine what would happen if the U.S. government collapsed. So we think the U.S. government is like, the most stable thing in the world. Maybe gold. I don't know. Like there's things that we perceive as stable. It's hard to imagine that that if humanity still exists, that it will that it won't be multiplanetary at that point, mm-hmm. right? Because we should definitely have invented spaceships <laughs> over that period of time, and like gone to other worlds, invented technologies we can't even imagine. Or we've just self-destructed and blown, our, blown ourselves up. There's the nihilistic but that's part. that's the nihilism in <laughs> okay. me. I'm like, we're going to just self-destruct anyways. I, so totally fine. And so, 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 but that's actually my point is that this guy, because this, this, this guy, he wrote something that we are now in his 2,600 years in the future. We are in his future. So imagine we can go back to 600 B.C. And here's this guy sitting under a tree. And we're like, why don't you write down some words that you think people will read 2,600 years from now? And he just plays the same game with with them. We are actually living in the future where his words survived and are read and are studied, not by a small group of people, but by millions and millions of people, by a significant percentage of the planet, consider themselves Buddhists. This is why I believe time travel does exist. It happens through books. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Still doesn't explain, but then I, I, I get it. There is this, but to me, it's, I'm going back to this idea. I think you have a very ambitious and very hopeful view that we're going to survive. We're going to, you know, there, there's going to be, 10 generations from now and it's going Mm. to matter somehow Mm. if i'm going to another planet Mm -hmm. and i'm or i'm going to be you know 
not in this body, mm-hmm. but I'm going to be jetting around, you know, mm-hmm. through light or what have you. Mm-hmm. This all becomes irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. Irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's there are a few things there. Optimism versus pessimism. Uh, both are adaptive in different ways. So what is the most adaptive position is some mix of both that has the adaptive parts of optimism, the adaptive parts of pessimism, and not the maladaptive parts of either. So what's adaptive about optimism? Well, if you don't have any hope for the future, then, well, you you start behaving in in pretty destructive ways. Um, uh, So, but... If you, but then what's the adaptive part of pessimism? Well, if you don't have any uh, sense for what might occur that's negative, you never prepare for different scenarios and you get caught unprepared. Um, so the adaptive mindset is some combination of affirming the future uh, and, and, and having hope, but also being realist about risk. Um, but actually... It's amazing that we're, we're talking about an actual book that has specific words. So let's go with this first sentence. What we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday, and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. All right. I just said a bunch of words. We could talk about what they mean, but I'll just assert that This is not a normal sentence. This is an insightful sentence. This is a sentence that is so insightful that if a child said it, you would f- fall off your chair if you actually understood what the child said. If the child said it and the child understood what the child said, I mean, I don't even know what I would do. Um, what does this mean to you? Not all sentences mm-hmm. are created equal. Like, mm-hmm. donde está el baño? <laughs> Which means, where's the bathroom in Spanish? You know, yep. It's yeah. like uh, the first thing a traveler learns uh, in a Spanish-speaking country. It's like, uh, is not as profound of a sentence as what we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday. And our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. What does it mean? Well, first of all, look me in the eyes. What is your name? Genevieve. And who are you? I am that I am. (laughs) And who is the you that is talking to me? Where where does it exist? Does it exist here in your hand? Are are you this? Hmm. Mm-mm. No. No. Okay. So what is the thing that's saying no to me? Where is that? How are we doing this conversation thing? The mind, which I have no idea where it is. Okay. Well, it's not. Real- somebody told me it was here in your head, but maybe not. No, it's the, the mind actually isn't the brain. Uh-huh. Correct. So. What is it? You don't know. Okay, good. That's good. 
So this is actually exactly why the sentence is so amazing. Okay. Is it's it's profound but simple. Mm. And it's a recognition, first of all, that I am my mind. I and my mind. My mind is my mind in the sense of my consciousness, my mm. my awareness is creating my entire experience. Life is almost like watching a movie. I open my eyes. I perceive the world. I assign names to things. I say, oh, that's a window. That's a building. That's a couch. Mm -hmm. That's a Genevieve. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then this sentence says, our life is the creation of our mind. And if you are anxious, if you are depressed, if you are you what you are today comes from your thoughts of yesterday so there's some carryover so that also implies change so if i'm sad today maybe i could be happy tomorrow how could i be happy tomorrow well our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow so it implies that i have agency i can take control of the life of my mind if I understood my mind, then I would be able to steer my thoughts. So let's start watching our thoughts carefully. This is knowledge work. Oh. This is lesson one of knowledge work. Whoa. You know what this reminds me of is, I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh, mm. And he talks about that we have a certain number of seeds, hmm. like there, there, there are a set number of seeds that have different characteristics, like patience, love, mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. And depending on what we focus on, because the seeds can also be more challenging attributes, such as jealousy, etc. That what we water, so the thought, maybe you have it once, but if you keep watering a thought over and over and over again like yes happiness over exactly. and over or resentment over and over so that's what's going to grow mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. not just having a thought also having the volume mm -hmm. what are we repeating mm -hmm. what's repetitive mm -hmm. which is why sometimes i wonder isn't that the act of, isn't mindfulness about going to chop wood and carry water is to actually be so focused on the repetition such that you can be an observer? And isn't that valuable? Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, there's the repetition that helps you hear and there's a repetition that makes you deaf. Mm. So, um, let's pick a mantra that we talked about today. Memento mori, memento mori, memento mori. Mm -hmm. This is Latin for remember you will die. Mm -hmm. Remember you will die. Remember you will die. die! <laughs> <laughs> so, it's amazing how quickly... Um, Words become 
sounds become vibrations become background noise or words become images and feelings and thoughts and real then this is actually the experience of reading a book which is why i think so much of the history of human progress is the progress of literacy hmm. i think literacy is still arguably the great battle for civilization in the world today very simple literacy hmm. and i think that we have literacy at higher levels than ever before um but for basic literacy like there's a stop sign or like uh you know i can read my emails i can respond to emails but what is literacy really Literacy is the ability to spell words. Words are spelled with letters, but we use the word spelling. Spells. Spells implies magic. Mm -hmm. There's a magic in words. What is the magic of words? Because they speak into things, into existence. Existence. Yeah. That's right. Um, words are a form of painting. Mm-hmm. Words create images, and that is magic. You can, as a matter of fact, everything around us, like the, that building, that skyscraper right there that we're looking at, that people live in, mm -hmm. that is full of plumbing and electricity and fiber optics and um, uh, refrigerators and beds, and the, the amount of technology in that building is stunning. The building itself and everything in it all has a blueprint. That blueprint is represented to the engineers that made it and the factory that manufactured it as a series of words, numbers, and symbols. And so when you start to break things down into their basic, mm. the basics yeah. of like what is the, what, is the, what is the life of the mind, what is knowledge work, you start coming down to very basic things words images and music and numbers very basic fundamental things symbols symbols hmm. yeah yeah those are images so words images numbers music Maybe there are other primitives, but it's, it really does become very basic like that. And from those things, everything else comes to be. I had another question mm -hmm. for you, but I want to ask you. Mm -hmm. In sum, mm -hmm. what is a knowledge worker? You want the practical definition or yeah. the philosophical definition? Yeah, give me definition? the practical definition. A knowledge worker sells their time in exchange for their their mind's ability to do work their mind they use their mind to do work they get paid for okay francis make me believe that what is a knowledge worker okay we pay 1600 knowledge workers in 77 countries around the world to do work 
that companies that are our clients find valuable. We pay them because there's no alternative to paying them. The alternative, there is none. Like software can't do the work. Machines can't do the work. Why can't they do the work? Because we don't have machines that are as powerful as the human mind. Hmm. Now, therein lies a debate. Mm -hmm. And this company stands on one side of that debate. And the rest of the world stands on the other side. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, are humans going to become obsolete? Are humans just outdated machines? Meat computers that are the product of biological evolution, but that um, will rapidly be outclassed by um, artificial intelligence. If the, there are different ways to measure the intelligence of a machine. Uh, this computer here has memory, hard drive space, processing power. Um, it has chips that have transistors on them. And there's a law called Moore's Law that shows that we're making rapid progress in the uh, our ability to miniaturize and thus increase our processing power. And so we started to imagine, well, if our if our iPhones are getting more and more powerful every year, if our computers are getting more and more powerful every year, um, well, what will they be able to do with all that processing power? And if you've heard the term AI, AI means a lot of different things, but let's use a specific example, ChatGPT. ChatGPT um, is based on a large language model, LLM, and it basically, similar to Google search, it takes huge amounts of information and it starts to understand the relationships between the information. And it you can speak to it in natural language and it will give you a natural language response that is surprisingly intelligent. And the more training it does and the more information it has, the more processing it has, the more intelligent the response. And there's a famous test called the Turing test that was written in the 1940s by a British mathematician during World War II called Alan Turing, who started to realize in the 1940s that artificial intelligence would be possible. And here we are in 2023, 80 years later. (laughs) And it's, he was right. And the test He called it the Turing test. The Turing test is, well, artificial intelligence is real if you can't tell the difference. If if it is, if the machine is a human in every way and you can't detect that it's a machine, then it is equal to a human. If it looks like a duck, talks like a duck, smells like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Now, this then gets broken into different dimensions. So we already know that 
for simple math problems, computers are not only as good as a human, they're much, much better. So they passed that test. Mm -hmm. But we can keep setting up tests. And in a way, our company, Invisible, is on one side of the test, right? Because we are doing, by definition, our business is to do the things that the computers can't do yet. But then we are... We are we, Give me some examples of those. Sure. Um, uh, if a client wants us to... Mm, um, uh, do some paperwork for them. Let's just say they're an insurance company and they want us to process insurance claims. And these claims have... Um, 27 steps in them and to have a human do it you have to put them through training and teach them how step one works and teach them how step two works teach them how step three works and there's a bunch of logic like if the answer to step one is x then for step two you should do y but if the answer to step one is a then for step two you should do b and so there's all this type of intelligence that goes into doing the claim correctly well our business is to run this process end to end and if we can't automate a step we have a human do it mm. so if in the beginning let's just say we have a human do all 27 steps then you have technology and you suddenly realize oh my gosh we can use this new tool to do step six okay so then you, you eliminated 1 27th of the work. Oh, this other tool can do step 19. You eliminated 2 27ths of the work. Oh, this other tool can do step 21. You eliminated 3 27ths of the work. Now, this is actually good for everybody involved. This is good for the client because the work gets done faster and more accurately and more cheaply. It's good for us because our margins improve. It's also good for the worker because if the margins improve, the price per hour that you can pay goes up and the level of work that you're training people to do is more challenging, more interesting, more rewarding and more valuable. This is actually going to my second basic question that I really wanted to ask you Yeah, because this is something that you talk about so much. And I don't know if everybody understands it. Mm. Incentive alignment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. WTF. What does that mean? Incentive alignment. Because you say invisible is the most <laughs> incentively aligned, incentive aligned company. You've, yeah. you've said, like, you've built it that way. I, yeah. and, and, and so I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, so are we talking about, um, are we talking just about making sure that, you know, partners are on the same page, about pay structure? Like, talk yeah. to me about... What is wh incentives? Where, yeah, what is incentive? Hmm. 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 So, well, let's build on the last thought. Most people think if everything's going to be automated, then everyone's going to be unemployed. Well, then we would be incredibly misaligned with automation. 
as a as a species. But humans do things that aren't you know short term wise. They don't you know not always aligned. Well, right. Okay. But 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 let's let's take okay. it at a very zoomed out level. Okay. Um. Let's take the plot of certain movies like Terminator or The Matrix, right? Okay. In that would be the most dystopian, as in most negative future you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Like a tragedy, not an epic. So if the future of, of the world is tragic, then um, then one tragic scenario would be we keep making technology better and better and better. We not only end up unemployed, the AI becomes so much more intelligent than us. First of all, the AI, like it becomes somehow one giant thing and um, and it and it it's a competing species and it just attacks us and kills us or enslaves us. Like that would be bad. So that would mm-hmm. imply a misalignment between our species and the technolo- technology as a species. And it starts, first of all, that's interesting. Technology as a species, what? Um, and then a, a maybe a different scenario, only slightly more positive would be, well, Technology is going to be better in us in every way, but it's going to serve us benevolently. Like um, everything's going to become really abundant. We're all going to be unemployed, but we'll but we'll all be rich. Uh, so we'll be all unemployed and rich, but we won't have to do anything because technology will be better than us at doing everything. Um, so then there's a question of like meaninglessness. Like what's our purpose at that point? Um, this sets up the alignment question at the more microeconomic level of like, what does alignment mean at this company? Um, so alignment at the most basic level has to do with winning and losing. Hmm. So alignment means win-win. Simple. Win-win. Win-win. Okay. So misalignment means win-lose. So how is it a win-win for, let's, use, let's go back to um, win-win for knowledge worker mm-hmm. and, or the agents, excuse me, mm-hmm. and the computer or automation process picking up skill or step number two and step number seven or step number eight. Yeah. Um, I'm actually stuck on the, the more human thing first. Okay. Let's just, let's just suppose you have, um, I'm going to make the boy, the bad guy. You have a b- boyfriend and a girlfriend and the boy gets sick. And for a whole year, the girl takes care of him and it's just wonderful. And then the boy gets better. And then the boy wins the lottery or something like something incredibly positive happens. And then he breaks up with her and like, you know. <laughs> Uh, doesn't take care of her at all and like goes off and like hangs out with like whatever his rich friends mm-hmm. we feel a basic injustice in this story right mm-hmm. uh, like there's something about that story that's just not right um, uh, and and so um, we have this innate sense of fairness that kicks in at a just incredibly young age and a lot of human politics is about fairness and it's very hard to define fairness um, We've developed a system of laws that allow for the creation of contracts that have come from realizing 
that it's better to write all the expectations down about what happens between you and I, mm-hmm. so that if a scenario happens that you're upset about, you can't claim that it was unjust and then come and like beat me up <laughs> or take my stuff or worse, be violent towards me. That that we're gonna have police and courts and and we're gonna put words on paper. So again, the magic of words. Words, yep. Yep. So so knowledge workers invented the law. The entire legal system is knowledge work. So so this document here is going to be something that you're going to enter into of your free will. And I'm going to enter into my free will. It's an important concept. I'm not forcing you to sign this paper. You're not forcing me to offer this paper to you. We're both doing it. Why? Because we think it's going to be a mutually beneficial transaction. Now, does that mean there's no risk? No. There are scenarios where I could lose. There are probably scenarios where I could lose and you could win, or where you could win and I could lose. But usually, a good contract designs things in a way where there's maximum alignment, which means that there are more scenarios where I win and you win than there are scenarios where I win and you lose, or you lose and I win. So, do you have to have? But it, does trust have to be there? Yes, trust underlies all. But you said it's win-win, period. So is this black and white win-win? Yeah, so life is messy. And, and this is actually why, like, um, you usually, before you sign a contract, you usually want to get dinner with the person or get coffee with the person or talk to the person on the phone in order to be like, you know, um, yeah, there's this piece of paper here, but who's the, you know, does this is this the sort of person that's, has the right motivations or what have you. So, so there's always, and this is actually the limits of the law. It's like very hard to anticipate every scenario. Uh, perfect alignment is not actually, um, uh, is not possible. Um, so perfect alignment would actually be um, uniting into the same person. So you think about the most aligned people like a husband and wife are incredibly aligned if it's an incredibly good marriage <laughs> um especially like you know you get into things like prenups or whatever like if they're really it's like you split the property 50 50 it's like a 50 50 deal you know uh there's the economic component but um you know a full uh if you and I could literally like merge into the same person, uh, not not to make it weird, uh, but like if, if instead of being Francis Genevieve, it was just it was Genesis or, <laughs> or, or Franavive, right? And and we became like somehow this like weird you know cyborg imaginary alien creature. Mm. Well, then we would be fully aligned. Okay. Um, now going back to business, how does invisible align incentives? Well, there's. There's short-term, medium-term, and long-term incentives. Short-term incentives. Um, short-term incentives are usually cash. So it's usually your paycheck is represented. And the question is, how much should you get paid? Um, a good example of this that we've built into our system is results-based pay. So the faster you do a unit of work, the higher the quality of that unit of work, um, the higher the complexity of that unit of work, the more you will get paid. 
And this is, you see, this is us breaking out dimensions of value and saying, well, what do we value in work? Now, what would be a less aligned system? Well, paying you by the hour. Yeah, Why? it incentivizes someone to just do it slower. Yes, <laughs> exactly. If you pay someone by the hour, they want to go as slow as possible. And, oh, you don't check quality? Okay, great. Well, I don't need to worry about that. So just going to do as many, as long as they don't get fired. So these sort of people, people are incredibly intuitive about incentives. Incentives are so powerful that if you don't think you have incentives, you're wrong. You do. Everyone on the planet has incentives. And so part of um, economic literacy, uh, part of uh, economic enlightenment, you might say, is simply becoming aware of the invisible technology of incentives. Incentives are everywhere. Here's an example. Have you ever wanted to punch someone in the face, but you didn't? <laughs> Why? Because... A, you were afraid of getting punched back, so that's incentive number one. No, more <laughs> A, I was afraid of getting caught. <laughs> exactly, and that's incentive number two. Why were you afraid of getting caught? Because there are laws against this, mm -hmm. right? And those laws could result in fines or jail or reputational risks. I mean, there's all these incentives. So incentives are everywhere, and they're very powerful. There's many kinds of incentives. And the more you become aware of them and name them, the naming of things is the use of words and the use of the mind. So like... Imagine a baby coming into the world. The baby just has impressions. And then the baby starts to recognize, oh, that's my mom's voice. Oh, that's my mom's face. Oh, that's my dad's face. That's my dad's voice. Dada, mama, light, you know, and you start to name things. And then suddenly the baby doesn't just see pixels. The baby sees names. So when you start to name incentives, you start to literally understand this crazy world that's happening. This city, New York City, we could do a walking tour of New York and just start to point incentive after incentive after incentive. And it would be a, after the end of that tour, both you and I would have learned so much about how the city actually works and why it is the way it is. Okay, give me, give me the, what train do you use the most, the L? Uh, yeah. Okay, give me the L train incentive. <laughs> I, just a few, just a few. Just a few. Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, um, first of all, who runs the M the L train? The MTA. Um, who runs the MTA? The state of New York. Um, who runs the state of New York? The governor of New York. What are the governor of New York's incentives um, to get elected? Um, uh, and then well, why, why does the governor of New York want to get elected? And how much does the governor of New York care about the MTA? Um, okay. That's, those are like the leader of the leader of the leader. What about the most local person at the MTA? Are they incentivized by, um, how clean the station is, how quickly the trains run on time and how cheap, how few dollars are built for the maximum value for for the the rider um is the price subsidized so when i pay that price is that the real price or oops oh boy uh is that the real price or is that 
you know, a subsidized price. There are all these things that you break down and you realize there's a famous story. The most recent subway that was built in New York, it's not the L, it's the Q. Mm. But the price per mile, um, the whole thing cost some unimaginable number, like billions of dollars. Like, like I actually don't want to misquote the number, but but there was a, you could probably type into Google most expensive subway in the world and it's the Q. And it's something like three times more expensive than the next most, per mile, than the next most expensive one, which is I think in Paris. And then it goes down from there. And is it because of actual corruption? Like money is just literally being stolen by the system? It's not hard corruption in that sense, but it's, it's, it is bad incentives. It's that everybody, all the contractors, everyone who's doing work is not held accountable in any way to maximum value for minimum cost. Mm, but that is an incentive though. Correct. Maximum value mm-hmm. for question, minimum cost. The question is what, 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 how do you define value? How do you define cost? But yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which economics naturally opens up <clears throat> into... Um, value theory, which means that economics and philosophy are inseparable. So use the term nihilism earlier. If um, uh, if my child is the dearest thing in the world, by the way, I don't have children, but like if I had a child and my child is the most important thing in the world, um, I might literally give everything for this child, right? So all of my decisions about what I do with my money, maybe I'm going to save my money for the child's education, are very different than, um, you know, I really, I'm, a, I'm single and I want to date. And so I'm going to spend all my money on like fancy clothes and parties. You know, suddenly your, your values change. Mm-hmm. If you're very depressed and you don't really understand, like maybe you don't even eat enough. Right. Um, so then you're like, what's the point of food? You know, so so your 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 value system is expressed by um, these choices. And this is actually why prices are the first artificial intelligence. Oh, Francis, the price system. Capitalism is prices. You cannot separate the two. And the price system can't be assigned by a computer. That's what the communists realized because they tried. Who assigns prices? Nobody assigns prices. Markets assign prices. What are markets? Markets are lots and lots of people making decisions. How are they making these decisions? They're making these decisions emotionally. They're making these decisions based on different ways of thinking. I mean, have you ever been to a dinner party and seen two people fully agree on anything like people really rarely fully agree on anything much less prices are you talking about the invisible hands yes oh invisible technologies is no but is that why you yes of descartes no no inv- the invisible hand um, i thought that was descartes not descartes um or- uh the invisible hand the invisible hand of the market um maybe it was Keynes. oh okay yeah but is that where Okay, but now, okay. Yeah. Do you, well, okay, we're going to go all the way to the back. 
Back to, to Back. Invisible? No, actually, <laughs> okay. is you asked me where ideas come from. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's all artificial intelligence. Ooh, you want to go mystical? Is that where you're going? Well, I mean, you just <laughs> called prices. Prices are. The re- so yeah. pri- prices are very credibly artificial intelligence, but in the sense that they're, they're, um, uh, they're crowdsourced phenomenon that are highly intelligent. So no individual person sets a price. They are the aggregate of all values in the system. So every individual person is expressing. If you if you meet most participants in a market, you'd be like, well, you know, like you might have markets where every participant is seemingly irrational, and yet the market price is incredibly rational, or, mm-hmm. or it just makes sense, uh, you know, in over the long run, anyways. Um, it's sort of we can get into too much technicality here, but. I, just keeping it simple. The market system works. It has intelligence to it, but nobody's in charge of it. It's like a natural phenomenon like waves or like a jungle. But yet, through this expression of values and prices, all of this incredible activity happens. Here's an example. I am balding. There are a lot of men that are balding or who are bald and who would love to snap their fingers and have some miracle cure. The cures that exist are extremely expensive um, and also not entirely effective. Um, And yet still billions and billions and billions of dollars are spent every year for these marginally effective and extremely expensive cures that are not really cures. So this now puts it, and any, this means that any inventor, any scientist, any geneticist, any, any person who thinks that they could cure balding, it's like having a bounty. Um, it's like, you know that if you cure balding, you will win, you will be a billionaire. You will be a billionaire. You will be a multi-multi-billionaire. It's one of the biggest known markets in the world. You make it sound like a disease, though, Francis. Ah, but it's just it's just a known thing, and there, okay, there are many yeah. there are many of these things. The market is is sort of incentivizing entrepreneurs all the time to solve needs. Yeah, and this is good because innovation um, is rewarded, and lack of innovation is implicitly punished. So, this is a form of peaceful revolution that drives the world forward. And this is why it's really important that Steve Jobs, when he invented you know, the first Macintosh, and he said, IBM has not innovated, but Apple has innovated. We've created this thing, reward us. And now Apple's the most valuable company in the world, and IBM is not. Mm. That was a form of justice. In the same way, Invisible's coming in and saying, Accenture, $180 billion company, the most valuable outsourcing company in the world. They're not a technology company. Is this the future of outsourcing? By the year 2050, are they gonna have dramatically reinvented and reimagined outsourcing? What, what is it gonna be like to do knowledge work? Are we still gonna be, the average knowledge worker with a college degree spends half of their time doing repetitive digital work, not being creative, strategic, or being a leader, or doing the highest work that they're capable of doing. 
If Accenture cared about that, instead of being fat and happy, maybe they would innovate more. Well, I look at that and I'm like, oh, okay. The market is wants something. If I can if I can create dramatic progress that will create a ton of value for a ton of people, I will create a peaceful revolution. Invisible will be bigger than Accenture. And meanwhile, all of our clients will have been dramatically more productive, creative, strategic. And they, in turn, if we can help them achieve their missions, they're also solving problems. Maybe maybe one of our clients is has that balding startup. <laughs> Portfolio company, yes. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can make that company, help that company succeed, then we're a part of their success. And so this is this, you know, and the alternative to innovation, the alternative to peaceful progress, well, is, is when... when uh, when people can't get what they want peacefully, they start to think about other ways, and the other ways are not good. Like violence is is, is the alternative, and in the twentieth century, one hundred thirty million people died because they felt like they couldn't get what they wanted peacefully. And so, I think it's, I think innovation is not just an economic imperative, it's a moral imperative. If society can't make itself better at a really fast rate so that more people live better lives filled with you know, more love, more joy, better experiences, um, more connectedness, you start to think through all the things that are valuable, like more beauty, more uh, inspiration, more creativity. What are the things that are just inherently valuable that everybody wants? Um, if we can't create more goods and services, <laughs> more goods and services, more good things, and more things that are services to people. Um, if we can't create new forms of value and deliver old forms of value better, faster, and cheaper, then people are going to start, well, they're going to start getting really, really frustrated and angry. And that has happened historically. And so it's really important to innovate. And that's part of the job of a knowledge worker. Thank you, Francis. You're welcome. I got my FAQs. <laughs> I got my FAQs in. I'm glad. Thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll do an out. We'll, we'll have an outro. Great. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. If you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.